Welcome to The Ziggler Show. I'm your host, Kevin Miller. In this episode, our topic is how to make decisions with confidence. And the most powerful successes in our lives come as a result of making decisions. And yes, that includes some bad decisions, of course. Those help us get to the good ones, right? But to achieve anything of value, it comes at the hands of decision-making. Yet, how often have you heard any guidance on just exactly how to go about making decisions confidently? It's really somewhat of a void out there until now. And in this episode, I bring you David Meltzer. He's done a lot of things, but this is what initially piqued my interest in him. Get this. David was CEO of Lee Steinberg Sports and Entertainment and not only served as as a creative and technical consultant for the movie Jerry Maguire, but Lee Steinberg is literally who Tom Cruise portrayed in the movie. So I watched it with my kids the other night on the, on the cusp of doing this interview. And as far as entrepreneurialism and decision-making in the moment goes and the real gravity of it, man, Jerry Maguire, that movie is a veritable playbook. Well, David's new book is Game Time Decision-Making, High-Scoring Business Strategies from the Biggest Names in Sports. A primary premise of the book is learning to be prepared to make decisions in the moment with confidence, clarity, balance and focus. And that's what you're going to hear us talk about in this conversation. Dave is a CEO of sports one marketing. It's a firm he co-founded with hall of fame quarterback, Warren moon. You football fans like me will remember Warren as the star quarterback for a decade with the Houston Oilers. David is a Forbes top 10 keynote speaker, an award-winning humanitarian, and two-time national best-selling author. This was just a really rich and heart-to-heart conversation, friends, and I encourage you again, check David's book out wherever you get books, Game Time Decision-Making, High-Scoring Business Strategies from the Biggest Name in Sports. So before I start talking with David, I've got a handful of resources I think will be of value to you. Okay, friends, here then I bring you David Meltzer, and we're going to talk about making decisions with confidence. Well, hey, David, looking as I first got into your book, you shared that the premise behind it is learning to be prepared to make decisions in the moment with confidence, clarity, balance, and focus. Well, then I find out that you were CEO of, of Lee Steinberg Sports Entertainment, and you guys not only served as creative and technical consultants for the movie Jerry Maguire, but Lee was who Tom Cruise actually played in the movie. So as far as entrepreneurialism and decision-making in the moment goes and the, the real gravity of it, the emotional of it, man, Jerry Maguire is my playbook. I own that movie, and so I was an immediate fan. I said, we've got to have you on the show. That's awesome. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of truths in the story, especially when it comes to the value of life and what we make decisions on. And I think it built the brand of being a sports agent and being a humanitarian as well as a sports agent. Yeah. Well, it was uh, an impacting movie on so many fronts, you know, right in the intro of the book, Lee, and I'm going to quote you, you say sports and business are both arenas where understanding yourself is just as important as understanding your opponent, where to be a winner and to create a dynasty of achievement and success. You need to make consistent decisions in an efficient, effective, and statistically successful manner. So I want to go right to that first part of that. The understanding yourself is just as important as understanding your opponent. I love that line. I mean, I can't count the movies where it seems like so much focus is on, you know, understand the enemy, understand your opponent, uh, opponent. And with, with nary a word given to first, understand yourself. And in most efforts that, as you know, we all make our sole focus is the, you know, that goal in front of us, we're looking forward. Uh, what are we looking at and how often 
do we miss that mark of what well, just what you said, coming back and understanding ourselves first. I love that you lead off with that. Yeah, I think it uh, through age and experience, I started to realize what creates sustainability. And when we attach ourselves to outcome, when we think the opponent is outside of ourselves, uh, that we're really limiting the sustainability of what we're doing. Uh, because we can't control those external dependent or independent variables. We can't control the next opponent, especially in entrepreneurialism, where, you know, I really delved in the last two decades of being an entrepreneur, whether it's in technology, sports, philanthropy, as an entrepreneur. So what I've learned is, first, the conscious level of what I need to understand about myself. And I really believe there's two consciousnesses. One is the truth, and the other is ego. And if I was going to be able to give one gift to the universe, it would be able to invent what I would call the egoectomy uh, because nobody can get rid of their ego. And ego is not just being arrogant. You know, I kind of put myself beyond things at one time or another, but I realized that a lot of people think of ego as arrogance. It's, it's a separation that occurs based on fear and fear itself. People utilize as a motivator. And I think it's, a really difficult thing not to use fear as a motivator when you're looking outside yourself, you know, a fear of not getting something done, a fear of not being enough, a fear of the competition or, you know, any other type of thing that we're unsure of the unknown, the not understandable. But for me, fear is misunderstood because fear has nothing to do with motivation. In fact, it's, I believe the biggest depreciator in life, it'll suck your soul of energy and where for me, fear is an asset is it it allows us to focus. Hmm. And unfortunately, you know, we don't need fear to focus, but most people use fear to focus and disguise it as motivation. I find substitutes for fear in what I call the truth consciousness. I find substitutes for fear to focus me. And that's where I came up with clarity, right? What clarity balance of my values with the clarity of what I want and then understanding after that balance that I can get focused and focus gives us confidence. When we're focused on something, we're very confident, but we don't have to use fear as the mechanism for that focus. We actually can use understanding what I want, why I want it and how I'm going to get it balanced with my core four core values, personal values, experiential values, giving values, as well as receiving values and determinative upon where I am in my life. Those values don't have to be balanced. I tell my teenage daughters all the time, you should not be worried about giving away 80% of everything you own when you're 17 years old, yeah. right? We, you should be an experiential value should be very high because that time from 18 to 28 experiences are extremely valuable more than giving or receiving in my point, in, in my opinion. So, but you can determine for yourself those values, but when we have clarity, balance and focus, that confidence is the, the truth conscious. When we're confident, we're in the flow and in that truth conscious. Well, and I'm going to get into some of those stories. And I'll have to say to folks, as a premise to the book, I whether you like sports or not, obviously you're a sports guy, you come from that. A lot of your stories are from that, but they're stories that conceptually people will understand. And I love people love as well, you know, myself included, those true life stories. And I you really help the messages hit home. Uh, by how you wrote the book, including those stories. Um, I, I, I want to make a, before I dig into some of the book though, there's some of just the initial premise that again was so, it's so relevant to everyone. I mean, the whole book is, but, uh, 
part of that statement again, you said you need to make consistent decisions. I want to stick on decisions for a second in an efficient, effective, and statistically successful manner. So I'm a lifetime entrepreneur. And generally in the endeavors that I do, I'm CEO in whatever business I'm involved in. And, and I, I, as I thought, I was reading your book. I've never thought about this before. I thought, you know, I'm going to start calling myself, uh, forget CEO. I'm CDM. I am chief decision maker. Uh, it feels like that's all I do. There's once in a blue moon, I've joked about it before where I'll feel like, I, you know, I am just, I have decision fatigue. I am tired of it. That lasts about just as long enough for somebody else to make a decision for me. And I don't like that. So, uh, I'm grateful for that, but I, I mean, that. I love your focus because in our audience here with Ziegler, the majority are in decision-making positions, whether they are business owners, whether they're execs, whether they're salespeople, whatever. And I see that as such, I don't think it gets the focus. Again, that's why I'm grateful that you gave it that focus that in those positions, we have got to be better more comfortable. I don't know. You tell me on making decisions. I, I, I just like how you elevated it. And I'm curious as to why. And for me, we came from personal experience of being a serial entrepreneur and someone who uh, had made bad assumptions. And I, 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 and people would say, Oh, he made bad decisions. Well, you know, I, I'm a rags to riches, rags to riches story. So grew up with nothing, six kids and a single mom ended up to be a multimillionaire lost over a hundred million dollars and then gained it back. Uh, And I gained it back through shifting the paradigm of value to understanding the decision-making process, not just the actual decision. And when I started looking at, you know, the decision-making process that, that I went through, I realized that assumptions were much more critical in the decision-making process than the actual decision. That if we made the correct assumptions, that our natural innate ability, our capabilities made it very simple to make effective, statistically successful, and even efficient decisions. They become easy. Right. If we can assume, you know, that we are sure, you know, that we, you know, for example, if somebody told me this stock is going to go up and I guarantee it, you know, that's an assumption. Right. But if that assumption is true, I could do very well if the assumption isn't true. So I have people go through a process of making sure that all the stable data in order to make the effective decision. And it actually allows you to do something that most people don't do, which is enjoy the consistent every day, persistent without quit pursuit of of the truth or their potential. In other words, making good decisions that maximize your potential. And so if more people would be more interested than interesting and really understand the decision-making process, and I use sports stories and analogies because a lot of people, almost everyone has some sort of affinity to sports and it's easy to understand they actually can accelerate their lives. They can have exponential growth in their lives and have the right perspective in their lives simply by understanding the decision-making process more than just what's a good decision or what a, a bad decision. If I focus in on the ends, I could never empower anyone to make a good decision. So digging in further, I'm not ready to leave decisions because it's such a topic that I, that I resonated with me. And I felt like that's, that's at the forefront. If people listen to 20 minutes of this thing, of this interview, I want them to hear this. Uh, you went on to say decisions are also influenced, influenced by your conviction and achieving your goals and by the core values that you hold, which inspire you to keep pushing through any adversity and curbing any inclinations to quit. Okay. As a serial entrepreneur, and I, I appreciate you sharing our already that you've had the highs and lows, the, the rags to riches and back and forth. 
that in that, I want to hit on that thing to quit. Cause we've all heard that, you know, never, ever, 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 ever quit. And yet as entrepreneurs, we've all done things where the, how would I say this? The vehicle, maybe the methodology. Sometimes we need to quit that, but being true to separating that out. What the goal, again, I like what you said there, what the goal is, the goals based on your core values. You don't quit on that, but talk to us a little bit, because I know you've seen a lot of success and failure stories that uh, maybe just differentiate that a little bit between staying true to that core value, to that, to that purpose uh, and not quitting on that. But yeah, sometimes we're doing it in a way that we do need to quit. T- talk to us a little. Yeah, you know, it's really difficult for athletes because they're taught not to quit on the game, mm-hmm. right? And, and they mistake that, that, oh my God, I can't let this uh, business go under. And uh, because a lot of them have their own personal resources, they end up bankrupting themselves because oh, they're so God. competitive that they won't quit on a bad idea, right? It's not quitting. So what I uh, suggest and empower people with is that, we're only here for lessons, right? That's why I say enjoy that consistent, persistent pursuit of your potential. Well, once you understand that our only purpose, and so many people are searching for purpose, is to gain those lessons. And there really are no mistakes. There's only lessons. And there's actually, when we learn a lesson, I call that a miracle. And other people might call it a mistake, a failure. When I learn a lesson, that's what I attribute to being a miracle in my life. And so because lessons keep coming and what I became aware of throughout this experience, this longer journey than most people have had, that have had is that not only do lessons keep coming guaranteed my entire journey, not only is the purpose of my life to learn from these lessons, but if the same lessons keep occurring, that means I haven't learned the lesson. Hmm. And so I can raise my awareness to, you know, these other people would call failures or mistakes in, you know, simply even outside of sports, you know, if I keep throwing to the flats and I keep getting picked off, you know, maybe I'm doing something wrong. Maybe the play is bad, right? I haven't learned the lesson yet, Yeah. right? The same mistake, they call it. I call it a lesson. And when I learn the lesson, it becomes a miracle. Here's the cool thing about it, though, that I think every entrepreneur needs to take away is that if life's purpose is lessons and all lessons that are learned are miracles and the lessons are going to keep on coming until we truly learn them, we have to remember two things. One, you're not going to remember all the lessons all the time, right? We're going to forget anytime we can forget like simple lessons, like saying thank you, being positive, being grateful, you know, picking up trash, being kind to people, right? We're going to forget them no matter how old we get, Every single day, we're not going to remember every single lesson. But what makes us powerful, what allows us not to quit, is that we have the capability of remembering all lessons at any time. Hmm. We have that capability to remember the lessons and then implement them. Even though we don't have the capability to remember all the lessons all the time, we have the capability of remembering them. And that's an important thing to have this perspective about our journey, about the positive nature and experience that we're having to enjoy the consistent and persistent without quit pursuit of your potential according to your value. Well, I, it's interesting because, so you said, I wrote down lessons are miracles, but then you caveated that in a sense that they, they can be if they're learned. If the lesson keeps happening, you haven't learned it yet. I love the perspective on lessons. I hadn't pulled that out. You know, another interesting thing that you said there, uh, actually, when I I ask every guest, of course, you know, what is the main message here? We were talking about decisions. We're going to dig into your book here. 
uh, but you said something you want to get across is I want to challenge the audience to build a habit machine. That is a strategy to build consistent and positive habits in their lives so that they are empowered to pursue their potential in the areas of their life. That means the most of them analyze the skills, knowledge, and desire you have or need in order to create positive habits in your life and work towards them every day without quit. Well, of course you're barking up Ziegler alley right there. Uh, I'm a Ziegler student. I know that's the place I started and I'm grateful. And you know, Tom Ziegler just came out with his book, choose to win. And really a lot of that germinated. He was on stage. It was a candid question. It said, Tom, what's the fastest way to success? And what just came out of him? He said, replace bad habits with good habits. And that really was the impetus for the book choose to win. So it's interesting to me because as I dug through the book, you don't specifically speak to habits, just like you don't, I don't think so. You specifically speak to lessons. And yet those are two primary things. So I was, I was curious when asked that question, why you came out with habits. That's, that's, that's like a bigger overarching umbrella. Yeah. So the habit machine itself, right. In in the core of the belief system comes from the conscious, subconscious and unconscious and understanding how habits are formed. And there's two, uh, you know, views of this, but for me, it's very simple. Faith is what creates habits. And people are like, what are you talking about? It's really simple. How do we create a habit? Number one, understanding you have to do it every day. There's a cellular memory and the cellular memory through our five senses, pick up data. If we have the same data inputs every day, within 21 to 30 days, a neural pathway is formed into our brain, which creates efficiency, effectiveness, and statistical success. But what most people don't go is the second part, which is there's an unconscious competency that we have. There's truly a genetic unconscious competency that consists of our personality traits, our characteristics, our obsessions and addictions which are directed by the DNA that we have, a code that was created from at least four generations down, and that we can only impact or activate or deactivate our DNA by having this habitual behavior, consistent behavior. And moreover, that habitual behavior and the unconscious competency of our DNA exerts an energy that we put out that then through all of this activity, what we think, say, do, and believe through all this activity that we do every day, through the five senses that we have, now puts out a signal, an energy that attracts what we want. And people confuse that law of attraction as if you're sitting at home, high on your mom's couch, dreaming about what you want because you can visualize it. That's like this much of the laws of attraction. Faith determines the law of attraction and all of these other physical manifestations that turn into what we want and guess what the key to it is is having wouldn't it be nice to have a habit machine where i could simply say you know what i want to start eating this way and Mm -hmm. start eating that way you know what i want to start doing sit-ups every day and immediately and never forget i've tried to read the course in miracles every single day and it took me four years till i didn't miss a day but because i knew that i could raise my awareness by reading such a text and really challenge my mind to do that. As much as I wanted to do it, I still missed a couple days during the year. Yeah. And thanks to these sponsors for bringing us today's show. So you just took the 
uh, meat of chapter two that I wanted to talk about right there. Cause you talk about that. You talk about the conscious mind, subconscious and the, uh, and the unconscious mind. And I thought, you know, I think we spend a good time talking about the conscious mind. That's what we, you know, evaluate what people think, what people say, what people do, the subconscious mind, which is the things that we believe is what you talked about in there. I'm, I'm with you on there. The, the unconscious mind. I, we don't spend a whole lot of time there. And you talked about it. And now I'm intrigued though, by something you just said, you said the DNA passes down four generations. You just took me to uh, Genesis in the Bible and the sins of the father passed down. I don't know why, maybe it was for this moment, but I have been, um, really studying the old Testament and that stuck out to me. I've got kids, um, we're, you know, really involved with our family. I went and from that got the names of my, you know, grandparents, their parents, whatever to four generations and talked about that with my kids and say, folks, we, we are outside of what you believe faith wise. We all know how impacted we are by our childhood at least. And to know that our parents were by theirs. So if we go up four generations and see all these people that we were affected by, you just brought it into a very a more tangible, maybe a less of a hoodoo guru for those who aren't into the Bible and such things. I'm just saying our DNA four generations out. I have not heard it put in those terms. That's, that feels, uh, that's a little more irrefutable feeling for the average person, I think. Yeah. And when you can realize that there's actually a epigenetic layer in a scientific matter that allows you to activate and deactivate certain parts of our DNA, that we can, in other words, take the best parts of what we've been handed down, the best parts of our personality, the best parts of our addictions and obsessions and characteristics, and be able to activate that, including, and I think most importantly, health. Yeah. Right. And what set me off on this journey was, you know, my mission in life is to empower others, to empower others, to be happy. And one of the key components, if not the key component of happiness is being healthy, you know, and I had to reprioritize my my own life as I went through the rags to riches, rags to riches and determine, Hey, family is not first in my life. My job and money is not first in my life. My health is most important. And I am now going to have consistent habits according to my health every single day because I can't give what I don't have. And I have to be healthy. And so I went on a journey to understand how is it that some people attract cancer or disease or have that in their lives. And then more importantly, when someone is terminally ill, how do they beat it? Like, why is it that we have the same technology and certain people can beat a terminal disease and other people don't? And I started looking at this epigenetic coding of understanding that those people are able somehow, I don't know how, they're able to deactivate that DNA, that's the, that cellular structure. They deactivate it and it stops growing and it shrinks and it changes your, and morphs your entire physical embodiment. Well, when I learned that, I said, wait a second, if it works on the most critical thing, our heart beating, why can't it work in sales? Right? Why can't it work in my relationships? Why can't it work in other things in my life that I want to manifest or get done? Why can't I go ahead and is a huge beacon, put out a powerful signal with a huge spectrum to many channels with great clarity and attract in my life whatever it is that I want. And the one rule that I don't describe in the book that I think is important overall is that as much as faith is a currency to me in the universe, right? It's, it's an object of energy in which we put into the flow to get what we want. Money, right? And all the way back to the Old Testament, Kabbalah and Sanskrit, money is so important to me. And I'll tell you why, because I live 
at this vibration. I live at this embodiment. I am here. That is a truth that I have to realize. And I am here and present in the best time and space that I can be in. And money is the energy, the object of manifestation at this vibration that it doesn't buy me happiness. It doesn't rent me happiness, but it allows me to shop for what I want. Money allows me to shop for what I want. Better health, better education, better transportation, better security, better stabilization, better freedom. All these things, because I live at this vibration that allows me to have. And so I have to truly submit to the fact that money is an object of energy, which we put into the flow of this vibration. And if we can combine it with that woo-woo, spiritual, faith, religious, whatever you call it, belief that we can manifest with our faith at a higher level. Oh boy, can you live a happy life? Okay, we've got multiple shows happening here that we're going to have right. to. Well, no, it's it's great. I mean, I, I can't leave the you know you talking about the uh, epigenetics. You know, I'm so enamored lately with the interest that people have, the populace has with uh, their their ancestry. We've got 23andMe and Ancestry.com. And of course, they're promoting it as, hey, you can find out where your heritage is. Well, they can't say what we use it for. And I'm, I'm partnering a medical practice. We'll have to talk offline. Well, actually, as, as of this show coming out, we will have just launched our new show, uh, True Life Show, that's on health and what it, how it helps us do the other things that we want to. It's not it's, it's a means to an end, in a, in a sense, to let us do that. And, uh, and we've got a new alternative health insurance product for people who are making those investments in their health and wellness. We use that 23andMe and Ancestry.com to see what your genetic propensity is for certain things that happen in your life that you are, you know, you do have a predisposition for whatever diabetes, uh, heart, heart disease, whatever. And then how can we go the other direction? Just what you said. So, uh, we, we got another show out of that one. That's just chapter two folks. We're, I mean, that, go get the book obviously to get into this stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm going to jump up cause I don't want to miss it. Chapter one here, which you titled putting together your roster by building yourself and you hit on relationships, uh, which you talked on marriage, which I mean, everybody who listens to Ziegler knows his devotion to quality relationships and to specifically a quality of marriage. Um, but your content, I, I, want, I don't want to miss this, your content on Ben Franklin, the Ben Franklin effect, uh, I had not read that before and I was really shocked that I hadn't because then I went and researched it. It's, you, know, you can readily read about it. I had heard, not heard that. Wait, you know what? I'm not going to steal your thunder. Let everybody know because I want them to hear this. You know, my mom told me to read one book before I went to college, and that was Ben Franklin's autobiography. And that's why this idea is so prevalent out there is that what I took from the book, and it's a long book and a boring book, was that I needed to ask for help, right? If I asked for help, I would become an investment of others and that they would then not only make them feel good by bringing out the best core of what they have, but then become a sustainable relationship and investment of others. And then I created the reverse Ben Franklin effect in the second chapter of my life, which said, not only would I ask for help, but I would shift everything, the paradigm of value of how I could be of service, how I can help you. Right. And so this became the Ben Franklin effect in my life, which I still tell today is the best piece of advice that I can give. People ask me, number one, productivity stems from being of service or of value, how can I provide value? How can I help you? But two, the accessibility, how accessible am I to others to not only receive, but to give that value and receive that value. And that's the Ben Franklin effect of productivity, providing as much value as you can, as well as accessibility, receiving value 
by asking for help. I have rephrased it even further now to okay. tell younger people because I think they'll ask me, what's the biggest problem you know, with, with the younger generation? They don't ask for help. They, they don't. It, we have all these skills, knowledge, and desire that now is accessible because of the internet. Right? You can literally get help from a genius on how to fix an outlet to how to fix a car to build an airplane, and they're not asking for help. Yeah, they're entertained with little videos and music and whatever, but there's resources out there and people that are willing to help you simply say, do you know anyone that can help me? You don't even ask to ask them personally. If you learn one question from this podcast, please take away, do you know anyone that can help me? Make somebody else feel good by asking them for help and allowing yourself to accelerate and grow in an exponential manner by asking for it. Okay, I'm going to... I'm not going to pick on, but it's Zig Ziglar. I mean, one of his, if not the hallmark quote, you know, is you can have everything in life you want if you help enough other people get what they want. And so we hear that, but I have, uh, hurt myself on, on, on just what you're talking about here by not asking for help. And it's really, and this is probably a, a good vote for this aspect I found myself doing it because I found it was just the quickest way to get help. Uh, I could spend time banging my head, trying to learn something, trying to research it. And now I am grateful. I'm sure as you do to have a golden Rolodex of beautiful people, amazing people. And I just hit them and say, man, do you, do you know how to do this? Have you done this? Have you had experience with it? Or if not, do you know who does? And, uh, I don't I wonder how many times per week I'm on the phone, just getting counsel from a peer. Uh, but man, I had to learn that David, it was not, you come from that, you know, you're the, you're the boss, you pour out, right? You pour out and, uh, don't ask for, so it's interesting to hear you say that that's your response to one of the greatest things that you see missing in our culture today. I did not, I did not perceive that. And it's from every generation. I shouldn't have just pointed out the young people, but you know, so many people, people ask me, how the heck did you lose a hundred million dollars? I didn't ask for help. Right. I could have asked anyone. I could have picked up the yellow pages, which used to exist and picked out anyone that owned a golf course and said, hey, man, I own a golf course worth one hundred twelve million dollars. If I just would have asked for help, I could have saved myself an entire lesson uh, that I was was a painful one, but a very, very valuable one. And I just keep encouraging people, please learn the two questions. How can I be of service? And do you know anyone that can help me in person, on the phone, via email, and all media, radio, print, TV, social media, all four of those, the golden matrix, the two questions. And it's funny because my life changed because of Zig Ziglar. And when I say that, I never got to meet Zig Ziglar, but one of his key, key students was a guy named Mike Bosworth, who later created... Uh, solution selling, sold to SBI. Solution selling changed my life. And I became a student of Zig Ziglar and never realized that my whole life was dedicated on elevating others to elevate myself. If I helped enough people, if I gave, I gave, I gave, and nobody ever taught me to receive. Wow. And and it, I realized as I lost everything, I could not give what I didn't have. That when I had so much and what was the best way to get it was to give other people what they wanted, but also they had to give back something to me that was their specialty, their capability. They also could accelerate my elevation, not just by being successful themselves, but by me asking for things that they're good at. Like you said, imagine how easy it was. And I wasn't cheating myself. I say surrendering or asking for help is a hyper aggressive state because it takes radical humility to ask for help. And most of us are too afraid to be humble. 
Well, that was my next question on that. We talked earlier about ego. And as I go back and look at my own propensity to not ask help, I'm tempted to say that a lot of it was pride and arrogance. Um, uh, some of it's impatience. I'm just, I'm just want to go. I'm not going to take the time to do that, but was it a lack of humility? I'd say, absolutely. Absolutely. And and I, I think I've learned it. I don't know that I learned it so much from anything altruistic. It was just realizing, oh my gosh, the fastest way to get what I need is to ask for help. But it does, it takes, it takes humility. It takes somebody and saying, I don't know. I, I realize I don't know as much as you do. And I'm sure people have done that and been burned with it too, but it doesn't take away the truth of it. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, I was just saying, what was this, what you said? If, no, if, it, if nobody, if people don't hear anything but that right there, uh, that is stout. Well, I, you know, I did, I cherry picked as I went through the book, you've got so much content and I cherry picked the things that, that stuck out to me, but I, I hope that I was, uh, well, the listeners will tell me that I was wise in pulling out some of the keys that I think are, are, it's all relevant, but even most relevant. So chapter three, coaching trees and growth. And you said you, you get priority focus in that one. Well, we're on that topic, humility. Uh, and I want to hit this from a 10,000 foot view. If you had to make a cross section, even amongst our show listeners who are, I'm going to say are more aspiring, uh, people populace, where are we most missing it? Again, you gave this a big focus for a chapter of your book. Where are we most missing it tangibly in our day-to-day lives in regards to humility or the lack thereof? I, I think it's finding people in the situation that we want to be in. So as you said, you were motivated by an enlightenment that I can get there faster. Yeah. Uh, but at its core, why do we want to, to get there faster? What we want. It's really so yeah. we can help other people. And those three worlds that we have to evolve from, one, being a victim. Why is this happening to me? Why me? Where there's not enough of anyone for any anyone. Then there's the world of positivity, which is everything goes my way. Everything happens for me. This gets me there faster, right? But then there's this world of more than enough. And it takes complete humility to live in a world of more than enough because it keeps and takes confidence to say that everything comes through me with appreciation. One, whatever comes into my life, I'm grateful for. And two, I have a responsibility to add value or appreciate what I've learned, then give it away. Right. So the more my philosophy then became, well, how do I get more so I can give more, get more and expand and give more? Because if it's just for me, there's only so much of me and I'll end up shallow, lonely, like I did with hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, sitting there going, what am I doing? I'm unhappy. But when everything comes through me for others, I I get the fulfillment and purpose of attracting it and achieving it, but then giving it away it exponentially grows the purpose and the, and the potential of what I've had. And so that idea of things coming through me for others relies on radical humility because you have to trust the universe. You have to put faith in that there's more than enough because the minute I let it go, I have to have full faith that there's more coming of what I want for more people and that flow. And I will tell you, when I lost everything, the first paycheck I got from Lee Steinberg, you know, Jerry Maguire, <laughs> the first paycheck I got, I took it and wrote a check to my high school, which my wife went to with me as well. And I said, I'm going to write this to my business partner, Warren Moon's charity to give a kid a scholarship to go to college because I never would have went to college but for. And meanwhile, I had lost everything. I was living in a rented house with rented furniture, one car, a pregnant wife with three daughters under 10. And 
I gave that check to my wife and I said, is this okay? And she said to me, you finally get it. Uh. And she goes, you trust the universe. And I said, I absolutely trust the universe. And she said, BS, double it. And I said, I absolutely don't trust the universe that much, right? But I'm learning, right? And I think it's important, like you said, to illuminate the fact that I'm on this journey. I still fight my fears, my anxiety, my ego, and humility. And, you know, the bigger the Instagram fame comes and the books and the, you know, launching this book has been terrific. Even today, I fought my ego. Forbes named it, you know, the best read for the summer. And I had that moment going, ta-da! And then I had to remember that, I, what can I do to allow this to help? And I started thinking, I want more people to read the book because I think I can help them be happy. This book can empower them to make good decisions in their relationships, their business, their life. And that's where it just changed for me that I could find a humble spot, not about, I did it, you know, this is great, sending it out to everybody, but more, wow, more people will be exposed to this and I can actually impact lives. Man, I just, I just had a flashback. Uh, from what you shared there. And thank you for that testimony to a movie. And as uh, you know, we have a fairly conservative audience, so I'll, I'll warn you guys, uh, uh, this, this one is not a conservative movie. Uh, the Devil's Advocate. I don't know if you ever saw that. It was uh, Al Pacino and Keanu yeah. Reeves. And the ending line, Scary. at the ending <laughs> line, he says, uh, it's, it's uh, Al Pacino pay, playing, um, you know, the, uh, well, the devil in essence. In right. He's a senior lawyer, right? To yes, the young exactly. Yeah. And he says, yeah. he looks straight in the camera and he says, vanity it's my favorite sin. And I've never forgotten it. Never, ever. It's always stuck out to me. And you just gave me that line because yeah, it hits us. I, I don't know how to get away from it because we we're a self-interested people. We're self-interested humans that speaks to us, but to realize, I mean, you just gave a great outline. It's one of the better ones I've heard on just an abundance mentality, as opposed to scarcity. What I have is given to me to give to other people. Um, man, chapter four here. Don't trip on the first down chains behind you. And I love the sports analogies too. Those were, those were really fun. But you, again, man, this was so close to my own heart. You talk about the necessity to understand your past. That one, uh, I'll, I'll be candid with you, David. I'm, I'm 40 year, 48 years old. It was not until my 40s that this came to light for me. I grew up in the personal development world in a coaching mentality. And I remember the definition of that. It was in a sense, and I'm going to pick on it a little bit, but it was a sense, Hey, it doesn't matter what happened in the past. Where are you now? Where do you want to go? What's it take to get there? That's what I did for so long until I saw these, well, I just say repeating, uh, repeating patterns, but lessons, exactly. The lessons that kept happening over and over. What's that mean? I'm not learning. And it was finally getting counsel from someone saying, buddy, you got to go back to your past to figure out why is this happening? Or I think this has some, something to do with your past. So I didn't go dig up dirty laundry. I didn't go try to make positive things negative, but to look back and go, gosh, I've got some things happening. Why let's understand those, get them on the table. Now, can I move past this? Yes, I can, but I failed by not going back into the past. And I, I, I'm afraid that that's a bit of a, a handicap that sometimes we miss in the personal development, self-help realm. And again, I'm assuming that you just came to this from your similarly, your own journey. Okay. Yeah. It really hit home when my dad passed away and my, this might sound woo woo, but like literally my dad had never told me he was proud of me. And I realized that when he passed and he loved me, Right. He, he was just incapable of doing that. And to me, I started looking back and understanding certain things that I did because I 
felt inadequate, not enough, that I wanted people to be proud of me, which then accelerated a lot of ego conscious behavior, right? The need to be superior, right? These separate feelings of the ego that caused me, even my motivation to create wealth was about me. And even when I gave, gave wealth, a philanthropist, my first time around from rags to riches, I was extremely generous, but I, it was all quid pro quo. I was trading, mm-hmm. right? I wasn't giving unconditionally. So I wanted my name to be read. I wanted to be recognized. I wanted people to say, oh my gosh, he's so generous. Even giving my mom a house and a car, which was the only reason I wanted to be rich at five years old, mm-hmm. was you know to make my mom happy. I still get choked up thinking about it. It all had a trade to it. And I started to realize that, man, I have to analyze my past. I, I don't I don't trip on the trip on my past, right? I, I, I forgive myself, just forgiveness is like money. I can't give it unless I have it. And the first person I better forgive, because in my opinion, more time, resources, money, and relationships are wasted over people not understanding forgiveness. They either beat the crap out of themselves or other people for stuff that we all do, right? For learning the lessons that we all need to learn. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, we could, we've got too many shows here. We, we might need to start a new podcast together, David. Nice. Uh, I know you, you've got your own, you've got your own. This is what you get to talk on, man. I'm, I'm grateful to have you here today. Again, so many of these things are reiterating, uh, messages that we continue to hear coming here on the show. You know, you know, in chapter five, being in the game, in looking at that, the first perspective I had was a message of being present, being present, being in the now, and also an over, overall method, message of having faith in the highs and lows. But I want to come back. You've mentioned the word ego has come out so many times in this. You had a line in chapter five that says, that said this, I'll quote it somewhere along the line. We tend to lie to ourselves often due to our perception of ego or time. Give us a little more meat on that because I was, it captured me. Yeah. So let's start with time because I don't think people understand time. I don't think they study time. I think they live within a 24 hour context of time. And there's simple things we can do within the ego about time, meaning I get to do this. I don't got. I don't have to do this. I have 24 hours of constructive man-made time. I want to be as efficient, effective, statistically successful. What about the fact that we spend a third of our life sleeping and nobody ever pays attention to yeah. the most powerful time, the subconscious and unconscious development that sleep allows, the productivity and accessibility that sleep allows. But yeah, we'll spend all our time wasting energy in the present without knowing the present of literally the time we spend sleeping. I don't believe in work. I believe because of this ego and time relationship that I have 24 hours of activity and my duty, my goal, my potential is to maximize the amount of activity I get paid for because money is the currency of this vibration. So if I can maximize that, I'm fine. Money, time, and ego are also tied together because People's biggest fear is they're going to die, which means they don't have enough time, <laughs> right? Yeah. So yeah. the basis of the ego is about not enough. It's about fear. It's about anxiety. Here's the needs of the ego that everyone should recognize. The need to be separate, inferior, superior. The need to be right. The need to be offended, guilty, resentful. The need to be angry, anxious. All of these things are the needs of the ego, but they only exist if it's a scarce world, if there's not enough. 
So if we can, through our ego, live in a truth consciousness and truly put faith in that there's more than enough of everything for everyone, including time, the relativity of our life changes into such a positive perspective. People ask me all the time, do you believe there's life after death? I said, I do believe that, but I'll never be able to prove it and neither will you. So my belief is based upon one simple perspective of gratitude and positivity that I asked myself, what am I better to believe in this lifetime that it ends or it continues? Yeah. It was a simple choice. Okay. There's, I, I do have to pull out there. It was, man, I think it was right at the beginning of the book and you have, boy, I, I'm sorry. I don't remember. It was like three primary things. And the third one was on sleep. And you, yeah. you, you said that the third of your life, I got to tell you. So we have uh, a, a happy life. You need one job, one person, my wife and, and a good bed, a good bed. Cause we spend so much. Okay. So I, that was great because we've just recently been doing some promotions for bolster sleep. Uh, the CEO, Jeff Nye, great guy. I sent him that. Uh, David, I sent him that. I said, I'm interviewing this guy. You'll love this. I, I actually told him he needs to get in contact with you because what a great uh, promotion for the power of sleep. You know, I, I want to do something here real quick because you, I, I think, and I think it's part of chapter five and I want to tell folks, you know, chapter six, seven, and eight um, are all the offense and defense of branding, marketing, and communication. And, and folks, it's, this is coming from, again, if you look at David's bio, uh, in his business involvement, his business success, obviously. So we're talking, you know, we got the sports world, the business world, uh, the philanthropic world, and the messages you have in there on branding and marketing and communication. Literally, those are a show in and of themselves. Uh, obviously, folks, you go get the book. I'm promoting the book here and promoting this message. That's why we have David on the show. I, however, want to come back here, and I think it was in chapter five. You can tell me if I'm right, but you talked about, you mentioned it just a second ago, the different aspects of the ego, and you had a section in there that was about telling, we get in the habit or in the methodology of telling people what to do. And again, that hit me because we come from, whether it's ego or even positionally, I grew up in the area of consultants and coaches and so often, and it bothered me because I was one of those that we often, even now in my, in my interest in the health and wellness world, we get doctors and we joke about them being so pedantic, you know, cause they're a doctor, they know everything, right. Or they come across that way. And a lot of time coaches, consultants, same thing. They have an area of expertise, but from that, they feel they have to be on this plane of knowing everything. And it's impossible. And I think we get to the point now where we don't believe that, but we still get into those roles and feel like this is the. Uh, persona that we're supposed to even have. And yet you had such a great uh, encapsulation of the, I guess the downfall of being in that place where we're the ones constantly telling others what to do. Give us a little more on that. I want you to dig into that. You know, I think the easiest one is in a parent child relationship that, you know, because it's the most important thing to do. And, you know, the minute we start telling, telling people what to do, we're missing the point, right? And we are missing the point because we are all hypocrites. And so when we start telling people what to do, there's two things that happen. We either elevate ourselves as superior or we diminish ourselves as inferior, which is the basis of the ego. We've now separated ourselves from the other people. And what we don't understand, especially as parents, is what we resist persists in the fact that we start telling our kids what to do instead of showing them or allowing them to do things, to empower them to do things. So what happened for me was instead of an instructional tale, instead of a, a really instructional 
mandate that this is how you do it. Mm-hmm. I started on a whole different journey of let us figure out how <laughs> to get this done, opening up the context of other people that have situational knowledge, experience, books, podcasts, giving different exposure so that one, it's all just a value-based empowerment that look, utilizing values in order to make a decision is not telling someone what to do, empowering them with values. And the core values for me are really simple, gratitude, forgiveness, accountability, and inspiration, which is an effective way of communicating to that, which inspires us, allowing it to come through and communicating it to others. And that communication has three realms, the power of my message, the spectrum of my message, which I call my frequency, right? The power, how far is it going to reach? How many people does it suit that spectrum, different frequencies, as well as the clarity in which it's communicated. And so I think when we're telling people to do, we are either, you know, using manipulation to be superior or projecting our insecurity with hypocrisy that we're inferior. And it's difficult because I'm a parent and, you know, you want to tell your kids so bad, you know, don't drink, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, you know, you might leave them and go to the bar at, or a birthday party and have, you know, two glasses of champagne when you just left your 18 year old and said, don't drink. It's terrible for you. Yeah. You, you know, know you, can't, you can't do that. I, and I, and I got to say, David, that I, quickly honed in on the spirit, the personality of your book that you put in the book of humility. Um, I, I truly did. And I, it's one that's probably a hot spot for me because I think again, in this, in this in environment of self-help and personal development, we have had times, especially I think more so in the past, we have more so in the past where if you're on stage, you are an authority or the authority. And that's the way that you thought you're supposed to come, come off. I think that we found the public, the populace, not accepting that as much. And I now have a chip on my shoulder. And so I I average a book a day that's sent to me. And when I get into one that right across comes off that, and I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater and ditch a good message because somebody comes off that way. But I, I struggle with it for one. And I think that the, that people have a hard time uh, believing that. I think it's one of the hallmarks of Zig Ziglar. The guy was so fervent in his message and in his confidence. And yet he was one of the most humble people that I think any of us have experienced. And, and I just greatly appreciated that in your book, even down to the stories of your own mishaps and your own lessons. Uh, again, the book is, is so many lessons that you learned and that, and I again, appreciated just as much the ones that you witnessed a lot of times from these uh, famous athletes that we all know as well. I think it makes it so much more palatable uh, for us. And that's what I found with the book and, and with your message. It's, hey, it's why you're here. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Well, yeah. yeah. Vulnerability makes us invulnerable. And uh, I read a book huh. by David Corbin, Illuminate, right? And when you can take the power out of others by just being honest. And it's so funny because I would have – thought that I would, the worst thing in my life when I was a kid, if I went bankrupt or had to tell anyone I was bankrupt. And now I use that as a lesson, right? Because so many people want to be super rich and I've been able to do it in my life, but I think it's more important, the decision-making process that I went through in order to lose it all. And then how to, to recover and, and what I did to recover and the lessons that were learned through that process and how I live my life today. And it's so funny because I have two words and most people thought it was thank you. When I say, guess what two words I carry with me at all times, put on my nightstand, it's hidden on my screensaver. It's radical humility. 
Because that's the true art of the law of Goya from John Asaroff, right? Get off your ass. The law of attraction, which includes action, which everyone knows about. Uh, But then the most difficult one to understand is the radical humility that is created called surrender, which is a hyper-aggressive state that includes raising our awareness of our ego when we're in our own way and taking specific action to allow things to happen to us and learn from them so that we receive more miracles or what we want. And that's what I try to portray. And I really try to give people the confidence to be humble. Okay. You just mentioned John Asheroff. This is show 699. We interviewed him in show 679. So just a couple months ago, uh, it was a great, great interview. I do want people to, you know, we'll just, we'll just anchor the show right here with your line. Uh, it sticks out to me. Vulnerability makes us invulnerable. If that's not an oxymoron to most of our, our, of our, our intellect, um, I don't know what else is, but your two words, radical humility is one that I may go get that tattoo. David, um, that is stout. Thank you so much for doing what you did to get this message out and even more so for taking your time to share it with us uh, today. It is, it has gifted me dramatically and I know it will everybody else. I appreciate it so much. Thank you so much. Well, how was that for a powerful show, folks? So grateful for David's heart and message. Again, check out his book, Game Time Decision Making, high-scoring business strategies from the biggest names in sports. Uh, you can get it wherever you buy books, of course. If you got value from the show, let David know. Let us know. Please leave a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Well, coming up next in show 700, we've got our Q&A show, and the topic is, again, your health. Uh, And how is it in our series here, giving focus to our bodies and minds, which are the vehicles for all these goals and efforts that we aspire to do. uh, We went to the Ziegler audience to find out what they are dealing with. And it's quite a lot, a lot of tough issues. So Dr. Randy James was our guest in show 695. I asked him to come back and talk through the comments and so many of these issues. So it's again, like a live coaching session, like you're used to here. What you'll hear is a common thread of addressing our foundation instead of always trying to zero in on one ailment, one symptom that is manifesting, which means the overall message here gives us all hope and tangible methods that we can address. Till then, folks, thank you as always for letting me walk with you as we inspire our true performance together.